We are continuing our study of this look at the future history of the world. Through our study, we've been gaining ground as we have been looking at this. We are at the finale, if you will, in Revelations. The final bull judgment has been poured out as our study has gone on. The only events left that need to be played out in the Redemptive plan of God is for Jesus Christ Himself to return to the earth to cast all of those who are rejectors of Him along with Satan, along with His demons, along with the beast and the Antichrist, the false prophet, to cast all of them into the eternal lake of fire that burns forever and ever. It has been a dramatic scene as we have watched this and in chapters 17 through Chapter 19 and verse 10, we have been getting a closer look at the final end of what is known by the name Babylon. We spent some time last week looking intently at that. And I want to just read for us again chapter 17 verses 1 through 14 this morning just to set our minds back on the scene that John is seeing and then we'll Unfold a little bit more of it together here. Beginning in verse 1, And one of the seven angels that had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Those who dwell in the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him 
the called and chosen and faithful. Last Lord's Day, we broke this entire chapter down into four parts just so to, it would help us understand. The first was the woman, and we looked intently into who this woman was last Lord's Day, described as Babylon the Great, the mother of all the harlots, or all harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. I don't want to go into all the detail about her. You can get the CD or go online or find some other way to get that to you. The second in our four-part description here, or breaking down of this chapter, is the beast. The beast upon which this woman sits. And we're going to uncover that today. The third, we're not going to get into it today, will be the judgment that God will inflict upon this woman. And then the fourth, we'll see that the woman and the city by which she is equated are one and the same. So she has a dual reality. Now you may remember from our last time together, last Lord's Day, when we were here studying, that the Apostle John is shown the name That is upon her forehead. You see it in verse 5 there in my Bible. It's all in capital letters. The translators have done that for us to highlight it. It is Babylon the Great. This is the woman's name. And verse 6 shows that she is vicious. She is intent on killing. She is bloodthirsty. She is against the true believer of Jesus Christ. She has the blood of the saints, the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Upon her, this is her intent. She is against anything that is related to Jesus Christ in any kind of true way. And John is greatly amazed. In fact, if you look at the original language of this, the English language here in verse 6 doesn't really give us the impact of what is really going on in the mind of John when he sees this. It says, I wondered... Greatly, But if you translate it literally, it would say this. I was amazed with great amazement. There's almost a double emphasis on the reality of the amazement that John has here. I was, I was greatly astonished, he says. You could put it in our own language, in the 20-something language of the day. I was blown away by this, what John is saying. And I find that very interesting as... Just we begin by way of some introductory comments. I find it very interesting because John didn't say that when he first saw the beast. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say that when he saw the worldwide religion of the beast. He doesn't use that kind of wording with the other things that he has seen, that God has showed him, that have been revealed to him as he's watched the unfolding of the tribulation. He hasn't used this kind of wording at all as it has been unfolded to him. But when he sees this woman, and we now understand from our study last week who this woman is and what she represents, he is amazed with great amazement. He is blown away. And now that we know what she represents, we too understand John's amazement. In fact, many of you came up to me after last Lord's Day message and our time together in study, and you expressed your own amazement at the connection between 
the false religions that begin in Babel and what is happening today in the false religions of the world, especially the false religious cult of Catholicism. You were amazed at what was going on. And by the way, if you are still not convinced that the ecumenical desire to join all religions into one religion, and ecumenism just means that, the joining of groups together when it comes to religion, it's the joining them together under one religion. If you're not convinced that that is going on today, let me just highlight an article that I was given last week by someone who was here, a newspaper article from this region that was written probably 10 plus years ago, which was a bit interesting to me in that light, in light of the fact that we're talking about this even today. But the article says this, it's titled this way, clergy sends out letters to invite people to visit. That's the title of the article. And it starts this way, an area ecumenical clergy group is borrowing a technique from advertising to invite people to join them at worship. The group is mass mailing an invitation to all the residents to visit one of the nine churches sponsoring this mailing. I'm not going to give you the names of the pastors involved because they're probably not even at these churches anymore, but you have a United Methodist Church that is kind of the ringleader of it here. He says the letter is scheduled to be mailed out this week. We'll go out to five to 6,000 homes in the Danville, Hampstead, Sandown area of churches. The letter, the ministers they represent will, differ, will represent different expressions of Christian faith. But they agree there is no better or more fulfilling way to believe in this world than, to, than, than as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that they use the name Jesus Christ, but that you can come to him in all kinds of different ways. They recognize differences in the churches, old and new, large, small, formal worship, others less so. They also note that churches have different personalities. None of us can boast that we have the one best place for everyone to grow spiritually. We need one another to be the whole church of Christ in our area. So they invite the residents to check us out. You have the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Church, the Congregational Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Union Church. All in an ecumenical effort to come together to try to bring people together under the guise of some kind of spirituality, some kind of ecumenical movement. In the end, it said we work closely together, although there are theological differences. That's a newspaper article from this area. The ecumenical movement is happening. You may remember back in 1996, there was a huge movement by the Catholic Church to join with other quote-unquote evangelical churches called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 1996. Huge movement. Hundreds upon hundreds of evangelical, uh, quote-unquote evangelical people across the country signed on to this. As if we worship the same God. 
This is happening. The groundwork is being laid of what we see here in Revelation chapter 17. The cult of the worship of humanistic, ecumenical, false religion is going on in our day and it has spread throughout the entire earth. The Roman Catholic Church is leading the way. The secret of the Babylonian mystery is found in the false rituals, the false rites and sacraments, the hundreds of false religions that are out in the world today, all led by Rome. And when John sees it here, in all of its grotesque clarity, he tells us that I wondered with a great amazement. I wondered greatly, it says. And the angel says in verse 7, why? Why do you wonder? Why are you amazed at this, John? Why is this such a shock to you? Why are you wondering? This should be no surprise. Why? Why should it not surprise John? Why should it not surprise us? Because, let me tell you something, this is the way it always goes when God is rejected. This is what happens when God is rejected. It always goes to this ecumenical kind of gathering, this unifying of things under a false name, under a false God, so that the appeased conscience can be stilled. So that the guilt of the conscience for rejecting God, moving away from God, for stiff-arming God, as in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, for suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, So that the guilt that comes with that can be settled in the heart. External attempts, folks, with righteousness. External attempts at trying to become righteous without having any internal change brought by God Himself is utter futility and it only leads to greater and greater idolatry. Mark that down in your own life as you watch yourself, as you think about your Christianity, as you fight the battle day in and day out to to walk in holiness. External reform without internal change will only lead to greater and greater idolatry. And so we know the spiritual side of this woman. We know that she is false religion that began back in Babel with the people gathering together to try to make a name for themselves in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And now we're going to be reminded of the beast, this one who is in concert with her. This shouldn't be all that difficult for us, really, as we look through these verses, because we have already heard these words and we've already seen some of these things in our study. You may remember back in Revelation chapter 12, as we began to get a look at the tribulation from the perspective of heaven. Remember that was little series within our entire study was called the, the signs in heaven. And we, we started to look at these signs that John was seeing from heaven's perspective. There were signs and, and one was the one was another woman that we saw. That woman we understood to be national Israel in Revelation chapter twelve, verses one and two. Satan was after her, he's continually been after her because it's through her that Christ would come, it's through her that the Messiah would come and save, and Satan has never wanted that. And then in chapter 12 there was this beast, and the beast was identified ultimately, at least in that chapter, as Satan himself. 
But of course, when we studied that further, we understood it even more clearly and came to understand that John was seeing, what he was seeing was the reality that Satan is behind it all. Satan has his little puppets. Remember, I called them that. Satan's puppets. And one was the beast. The other was the anti or the uh, uh, false prophet. But Satan is the one energizing it all. Satan is energizing the beast. The beast was a person. And we know that because Revelation chapter 13 gave us greater detail about that and about this person. Just to remind us of this so we're not confused, go back to Revelation chapter 13 just to show you that. John sees, he says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like that of a bear, his mouth was like that of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. We know who the dragon was. That's Satan himself. The red dragon of of Revelation chapter 12 gives this one his power. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? You see, we get a description in chapter 13 of of this beast that we now see again in Revelation chapter 17. So we remember from our study of chapter 13 that there were several nations mentioned. We saw this seven-headed, ten-horned beast before in chapter 13. And in chapter 17, we see the same thing. And those seven heads are nations. We explained that back then, the Six great empires that have ruled in world history up to this point. All have fallen, at least from our perspective, in the world. Because we're looking back at what has already taken place. And yet, one of the fallen will come back. The text tells us. That's why many believe that the beast is a Roman empire and a Roman religion. Because you had six fallen empires in world history, at least from our perspective. Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those are the six major uh, rulers, if you will. They They had world domination. And it's that what we find in Revelation chapter 17. We find the time when John is seeing this. When John sees this, there's only five that have fallen. One is. Right? That's what the text says. One is still in existence. At that time, it was the Roman Empire. So you have five plus one, that's six. From our perspective, six have fallen. From John's perspective, five have already fallen. One is. That's the Roman Empire. And there is still one to come. So Many believe that number seven will be the revived Roman Empire. The empire is equated with its leader. We understand that in Revelation. So just to kind of summarize for us a little bit so that we're not lost in the flow here. We could say that the first five from John's perspective were Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Okay, Those five, those five major world 
empires. All great world empires all have followed. The one that is, when John writes, is Rome. It's gone off the world map from our perspective, but when John writes this and sees, it's still on the scene. So it was, but it is not now. One is and is not. But it will return as a seventh and even an eighth. And we'll see that as we move along. There is one of the seven that will also be an eighth. We'll see that in chapter 17, verse 11. We'll get to that in just a moment. So what John is seeing in chapter 17 is what he has seen already back in chapters 12 and 13. This is not necessarily all that new, but it is similar information, and we are seeing the destruction coming about in chapter 17 through 19, verse 10. So this group, as we saw even when we studied chapter 13, is a composite group of world leaders, seven heads. In other words, he is like all of them rolled up into one. This is the beast of chapter 13. So John, when he gets to 17, the angel is showing him the final form of this global union, this ecumenical union that takes place. And the beast embodies every other, everything, I should say, that was common to the first five world empires, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, and Greece, just like in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, if you want an Old Testament view of this very happening. And then the sixth, which is Rome. And like I said, many believe the seventh will be a revived Roman Empire, one that's not like any that have ever existed in the history of the world before. In other words, the beast will be so powerful, he will have nothing else really in the world to compare him to, except to simply sum up all of the other empires that have ever existed in world domination, and this one will be more powerful than all of them put together. He is the Antichrist. And his kingdom is of the seven, but it's an eighth. Like I said, I'll show you that in just a moment. So this is a beast who was the old Roman Empire, who is not the Roman Empire now gone, and who comes, possibly a new Roman Empire, both religious and economic. That's why I said this woman has two... This identity is, she's the religious side, the beast is the economic side, and yet he will absorb both of them. And so we know what it means when we study chapter 17, when we come to that, because we understand what chapter 13 meant, speaking this seventh who comes to be an eighth is speaking about the fatal wound that the beast had. One of his heads had a fatal wound in coming back to life. He is a revived, if you will, empire. He is killed and comes back to life. And so he is a seventh and an eighth. And I believe this is the satanically faked resurrection. This is what Satan has determined in his own mind and heart to come against God with. Somehow when the Antichrist reaches a certain level of power during 
the tribulation, he has to be taken to that next level. He has to get to the place where, where he has worldwide domination. For the first half of the tribulation, he is in the mix, and then he raises himself up as this God, and he places himself in the temple as if he is God. And the false religious system exists alongside him as he's dealing with these things in the first part of the tribulation. And all the world is being gathered into this great world religion, and they're worshiping him, and all of these kinds of things. The global economic system is operating under his care. The false prophet is running the religious system. He is running the economic global system. And the Antichrist, as this political and economic power, runs that side, and they both coexist. Then the moment comes for the Antichrist to take over everything. And in order to launch him out of the human realm into greatness, into utter greatness, into the what we might say is the supernatural realm, a fabricated resurrection takes place. We saw that back in chapter 13. When that happens, the Antichrist who apparently dies, comes back to life. And when he comes back to life, he no longer tolerates the religious system and he wants to destroy it. We'll see that in chapter 18. In fact, you notice that in verse 16 of chapter 17, the ten horns which you saw and the beast, they will hate the harlot And will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. There's coming a day when even the beast will hate the harlot. Even she is getting in his way. So now notice, just so we can walk through this now in the text. Notice verse 8. Verse 6, John sees this woman. He's astonished. The angel says, why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery. And he begins to tell her. And it's this one who has seven heads and ten horns. Same one we saw in chapter 13. In verse 8 he says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. The abyss, you remember, is the home of demons. It's the reference to hell itself, if you will. It's the underworld of Satan. And what happens with this fake resurrection is that now he is no longer only human, but now he has become the dwelling place of some great demon out of the abyss. And with the false prophet doing signs and wonders, as we saw in chapter 13 alongside him, the people are struck with awe. Notice verse 8. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not. And will come. They're at awe at this supposed resurrection. Notice, he says, those who dwell on the the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who dwell on the earth. That's the, the common phrase. We've seen it over and over and over again in our study of Revelation for the ungodly, the unbelievers. And we know these are the unbelievers. We know it's referring to those because it says their names aren't written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They are enamored with the beast. They are at all with the beast. They don't realize that he's on his way to hell. They don't realize that he is even possessed by something from the depths of hell. And so they are deceived and they identify themselves with him. They are those whose names have not been written 
in the book of life from the foundation of the world. That simply is a way of saying that these people are the non-elect. These are the non-elect. The peoples whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, which was when God wrote the names of the elect in the book of life. Those whom God's saving, their names are written in the book of life. Those whom God will not save, their names are not written in the book of life. Only the elect are saved. I don't think that's the main point that John is trying to get across here, but the Holy Spirit places it here for our understanding and for us to realize something that only the elect are saved. So... The world of the non-elect will be deceived by this massive power. We read about some of that this morning as Russ read our scripture text. And we stopped at verse 14. And I want to read to you from verse 15 and following of that same text in Matthew chapter 24. Because Jesus says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the house top not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Let him who is in the field not turn back and get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Talking about the elect of the Israel nation. Then, if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there is there he is, don't believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. See, God has so written His plan and His redemption for those whom He has chosen that not even the Antichrist, in all of the powers given and allowed by God for the Signs and wonders and even the false resurrection, even the elect won't be deceived. Only those who will be deceived are those who dwell on the earth will wonder because their names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. And when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come, they are amazed. They are amazed. Verse 8 of Revelation 17 says that he, the beast, is going to destruction. He's going to destruction. In fact, it says it again in verse 11. At the end of verse 11, he goes to destruction. This is an emphasis of the point. He is deceived. He is a demon-possessed man who will end up in the lake of fire forever and ever. But in the meantime, the world worships him. And that amaze you? As you sit there this morning and you think about that and you think about the time in which God providentially placed you and the time and day and age in which God gave for you to believe upon Jesus Christ and God by His grace grants you the faith that you might express it in Jesus Christ so that you're saved and God has written your name into the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. You could be one of those who are deceived and yet you're here sitting you believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? John says, listen, while the beast here might refer to a person, 
refers to a composite kingdom as well. He stands for a composite kingdom, verses 9 through 13. He says, here is the mind of wisdom. Here is the mind of wisdom. I don't think this is all that difficult for us to understand if we paid attention back in chapters 12 and 13. Because John says here, here's what the angel says. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The woman being the false religion, Babylon the Great. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes... He must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. Ten horns which which you saw are ten kings you who have yet to receive a kingdom but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. This shouldn't be all that difficult for us to understand. But just so that we are clear here, it says that the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Verse 9. Now look back at verse 3. Because the beast is full of blasphemous names in verse 3. Having seven heads and ten horns. Same as chapter 13. We've seen this before. This isn't new. Here, verse 9 says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, just stop there for a moment. The word for mountain here doesn't necessarily mean some large mountain, something large. It can mean, even in Scripture, a a small hill, a, a small mountain. You can see examples of that if you want. You'll write this down. We're not going to turn there, but Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 15, John chapter 6, all of those have that same word used, and it's referring to smaller places. And it is because of what this verse says that many believe, listen, in our day and age, many believe that this is talking about literal Rome, the city of Rome. That's that's what it's talking about, at least that's what they say, because Rome is a place that is said to be the city built on, guess what? Seven hills. I believe there is certainly a link to Rome, religiously. Maybe even a physical link to Rome as a city. I don't know. We can't be dogmatic. But it has to be more than that. Why? Because verse 10 goes on to say, and they are seven kings. So the beast is more than a false religion. The beast is more than one city. His empire covers the globe. The false religious system will be wider spread than just one city. So to say that this is Rome with its religion there and with its city there is to say too much because it is not just simply described here as seven mountains, but they are seven kings. And so I believe that is why the angel says to John here in verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. I believe he's talking about spiritual discernment. Here is spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment tells us that the reference to the beast is more than just a geographical location. It's much different than that. It is greater than that. It is much more widespread than that. 
And so the primary issue here is that the mountains represent kings, not literal mountains. Verse 10 says, five are fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. Remember at the time that John writes, Rome is still a great world power. Rome is the one that is. Five have fallen. Remember, we've already listed those. One is Rome. So if you go back to the beginning of history in the biblical framework, we have those five nations, Egypt, Assyria. That's one and two, even in Daniel's vision, remember? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. So that takes us up to six. And John writes, five have fallen, one is. Five are gone out of existence. We know who those are. And John writes, there is one still in existence. And as John writes, one is, that's Rome. Notice, then verse 10 goes on to say, the other has not yet come. What is that? What is that kingdom? That's the future kingdom of Satan and Antichrist. That's this beast's kingdom from the perspective of John, the future great world kingdom. And when he comes, of whom the great beast is synonymous, he will rule the world. And the beast being synonymous with king is synonymous with his kingdom. So when it talks about the beast's kingdom, when it talks about him being a king, it's all talking about the same thing. He is the beast. He is the Antichrist. But when he comes, he must remain, it says in verse 10, notice, he must remain for a little while. A little while. What is that? That just means a brief time. He must remain for a brief time. How long is a brief time? We talked about this before as well, back in chapter 12, when we studied chapter 12 and verse 12, because there it talked about that. Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. And then chapter 13 and verse 5 says, it will be 42 months in which he will blaspheme the name of God and his tabernacle. So... The abomination of desolation takes place midpoint of the tribulation. And from the midpoint of the tribulation to the end, 42 months, three and a half years. That's the little while of verse 10. He is ruling the day as the one for a little while. Then verse 11 says, And the beast which was and is not is himself also and eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. So what is being described here, what is saying is that the seventh is the kingdom to come, a revived Rome, if you will, if it is the Roman Empire. That's the kingdom of Antichrist in the future. But notice, not only is it the seventh, it is also an eighth. You say, well, how can he be both the seventh and the eighth? I already mentioned this. Some of us may think we don't know already, but I already did mention it. He is a revived in a false resurrection. Remember that? He has to be catapulted from simple power, from rising up in the ranks under the first half of the tribulation until he raises himself up as the God. 
So he's going to appear to die and rise again. Romans, Revelation 13, verse 3. So he's both one of the seven and he is also an eighth. For the first half of the tribulation, he will coexist with the great harlot. False religion, Babylon the Great in the spiritual sense, as we saw in verse 5. And then he will demand that the harlot be destroyed. I showed you that in verse 16. The whole worship of the world will come to him. He will be worshipped as the God. So listen, the final kingdom is a seventh kingdom and it's also an eighth kingdom. Just like chapter 13 told us, it is a composite kingdom. Notice verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings. They haven't yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Horn being that symbol of power in Scripture. Power, authority. And in the final kingdom, Antichrist and the Ten horns, which are symbolic of ten kings who will receive their kingdom, also will have their power. And during the time of Antichrist's reign, there will be these ten kings under him that rule the globe. At least for an hour. In fact, if you want Old Testament reference, Daniel chapter 2 describes this on the statue that he saw with the ten toes on the statue. Ten toes. So in the same way we see this composite group that is with the Antichrist. In some way they will be part of his kingdom. They don't have a kingdom yet, it says, but they will during the tribulation and they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Why? Why do they have this power? Verse 13 tells us. I love when God does that. We have questions. Why God? Why is that going to happen? God just answers it right here. They have one purpose. They have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. God in his omnipotence, in his all-powerfulness, God has providentially allowed them to get power simply for the purpose of giving their power to the beast. There is an ecumenical purpose behind their kingdom. They have one purpose and one purpose only, and that is their power so that they might unify the entire globe under the Antichrist. One purpose. That's why it only takes an hour. They are being used as a unifying force to bring the globe under Antichrist. You say, how is this going to happen in the world? This is how it's going to happen. How is it going to happen with diverse languages and diverse people and a, and, a, and a globe full of multiplicity of nations? This is how it's going to happen. And so it makes sense that the Antichrist is going to take control of the world. He will somehow have it divided under his care so that people are under these ten kings to answer to them for one hour and they give their power to him so that he alone is the supreme one. And they have one unified purpose. What is that? Verse 14. These will wage war against the Lamb. That's their one unified coming together. All the people under their 
prospective kingdoms in the world coming under the Antichrist with one direct aim, that they might wage war against the Son of God. They are bent on the destruction of anything related to Jesus Christ. And we know that the, that the Babylon the Great, the false religion has been on that. We already saw that in verse 6. She's, she's intoxicated. She's, she's overcome by the delight of killing the saints and having the blood of the witnesses of Jesus on her. So religion is already bent at, at getting those who truly know Christ and, and removing them. And the martyrs are already crying out from under the throne, when will you vindicate our name? This one has one bent. They are against the Lamb of God. And here's the best part. This is the best part of all of this. They cannot win. I love this. Why? Notice what it says. And the Lamb will overcome them. That's the word for conquer. The Lamb will conquer them. Why? Because He is Lord. Because He is Lord of Lords and He is King of Kings. That's why they won't conquer Him. Because there is no one else who is Lord over Him. He is the Lord. That's an absolute statement about the very character of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say, well, because the war is going to go on for a little while and somehow He's going to gain ground and His troops will be more and somehow He has more power and if you throw more troops at it, more troops win and so He just somehow overcomes them. No, all it says is this is His character. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings, period. He will overcome them because of who He is. I love that. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, the Bible says. He who trusts in horses, trusts in the things is foolish, the Bible says. It is Christ who is the supreme one. In fact, turn over to chapter 19 and verse 16. Chapter 19 and verse 16, it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. There is a name on the forehead of the harlot. Her name is is the Babylon the Great, the mother of all the harlots, the mother of all abominations of the earth. She is the, the mother of all religions that are false and who follow after gods that are not the true God. But on our Lord, on His robe and on His thigh, there is a name written, and it is King of kings and Lord of lords. God is so good. And notice... In verse 14 of chapter 17, there's a second thing that comes as to why they can't have victory over the Lord. Not only is He Lord of lords and King of kings, but also because of those who are with Him. The called, the chosen, faithful. You know who those are, folks? Those are redeemed believers. Those are redeemed believers. Believers, believers who are with Christ when he returns. Guess who that is? That's us. That's the church. That's the church. Look over in chapter 19 again. Beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold. A white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. 
And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. That's us. That's the glorified church. These are the saints of God's glorified church. You see, we are taken away before the tribulation happens, called the the rapture of the church. Before the tribulation begins, we're taken out of the way. But we return with Christ. We are those in verse 14 of chapter 17 who are the called, the chosen, faithful. Some say the church is going to go through the tribulation. I say, oh no, no, they're not going to go through the tribulation. The church is raptured before the tribulation according to the scriptures. But the church has its part in the tribulation. You know what its part is? Right here, coming back with Christ. That's our part. We come back with Christ to destroy The enemies. And the beauty of it is we don't have to do anything. Because chapter 19 verse 15 says from his mouth, that is Christ, the king of kings, lord of lords, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe is written the name king of kings and lord of lords. And in the end they are all slayed by the simple word of his mouth. You see that in verse 21 of chapter 19. The rest were killed with the sword which came from his mouth. Him who sat upon the horse or on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What grace. What grace. What glory. What victory for us as his children, as as God's chosen people. What, What grace that we would be able to be involved with that and see his glory on display in such a way. You see, the woman is false religion, led in our day by the Roman Catholic Church who is heading the way at this ecumenical union between all faiths, Babylon of old. The beast is the Antichrist, his kingdom. Initially, the woman directs the Antichrist. She is sitting upon him. He supports her, but she will come to an end by him. And then so also the city Babylon will come to an end as well. Notice verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. You see, she has a spiritual side and she has an actual present physical side somewhere here on this earth. That's why some believe it's a revived Roman religion and a revived Roman city that's ruling it all. So the stage is being set. Ecumenical religion is upon us. You and I dare not be deceived. We know what's coming and we know what's behind it all. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, I have told you ahead of time. We know what's coming. We know what's behind it all. Therefore, we're all the more equipped with the gospel so that some might be rescued. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these things here in your word. They may be frightening to to read about, to think about, to even ponder.
we dare not speculate too far beyond anything your word tells us or we find ourselves thinking of things that you haven't told us. Lord, it's hard for us not to because we, we're curious, curious about all that's going to happen and all that's going on. And yet all of this is here so that we might be motivated to tell others about Jesus Christ. Because you have not only made a way for people to be saved, but you've made a means through which that happens. And we are the conduit through which you have given the privilege to be gospel sharers. So we hear the truth to come. We know of what is about to come. And we are all the more motivated and impelled to tell others about Jesus Christ, that you, by your grace, might save. Lord, thank you for the unfathomable grace and mercy that you have shown us, those here who are here who know Jesus Christ already. There may be some in our midst who don't. Almost surely that's the case. Lord, your word says today is the day of salvation. And we pray that through what has been heard this morning, that your spirit would take these words and Till them into the ground of a hard heart, that that heart might be softened to the truth, embrace the truth, and come to know Jesus Christ by faith. Lord, if that be the case this morning in the heart of one, may allow us to know that, allow us to, to hear of that person, to be able to encourage them, and thank you for saving them. And if there are those who go away obstinate, still stiff-arming you and stiff-arming your grace and mercy, Lord, we pray that you would break them, cause them to be unhappy, to be uncomfortable in their sin, so disturbed by what they've heard this morning that they would not rest until they find the answer in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, thank you for this time. Bring us back tonight to worship you in like manner, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.